welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. <laughs> welcome back to another episode of the Flex Success Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Dean. That is me. And I'm kind of nervous for this guest today because you're like the overlord of the industry. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to tell the audience who you are, what you do, and why you do it? Yeah. um, So I guess my my current title is um, I'm a postgraduate researcher at the University of Surrey in the UK. Um, My the actual kind of focus of my my doctoral research is chrononutrition, so timing of food intake and its influence on metabolic health. Um, I did my master's in nutrition science at the same uni, um, but at the time I was doing it uh, modular, so part-time over two years, Um, and that was because I actually started out kind of in a completely unrelated field where I, I... started uh, um, my professional life as a lawyer, um, as a barrister in Dublin. And I worked in that industry for nine years. Um, and then I eventually got offered the full-time PhD program. And so that was the fork in the road. So I'm now, I'm now a former lawyer, full-time, full-time researcher. Um, and that's, uh, kind of been really the the defining transition of the last, say, three to four years. Um, On top of that, then, over the past kind of year, I I started my own website, which is kind of critically review-focused nutrition science education platform. And I also work with Sigma Nutrition, so I'm sure most people listening may have heard of Danny Lennon and Sigma Nutrition. Um, So I'm the chief research officer at Sigma Nutrition as well. And we're we're trying to, again, produce a kind of range of educational resources for nutrition science for the public. So, so yeah, so now my life is fully invested in in nutrition, um, both in the kind of public science communication side of things, and then also in my actual day-to-day life, which is, uh, which is in research. Yeah. Yeah. Why the transition from law? And so it it had kind of been, it's something that it was in my head. I originally did the master's out of kind of academic interest. Um, I always loved nutrition. I was drawn to reading research to try and resolve these kind of like conflicting messages it was getting online. But I kind of quickly realized when I was reading research that I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, And you know, there the, the was clearly some specific skill set that needed to be acquired in order to do that better. So originally, the kind of plan was, I'll, I'll just do this purely for myself, for my own academic enjoyment. But as I went through the MSc and got, you know, and, and Surrey has an incredible nutrition science department, and I just kept getting exposed to these really brilliant people. Um, and then during the course of my dissertation research, just really fell in love with the research process. and so. I, I was always going to do a PhD, but I had semi-thought I might do one part-time as well. I was kind of open to, to options and opportunities. And then the, the project that I started last year, January of last year, came available, but it was full-time. And, and it was just the four road and, you know, 
you kind of get to a decision like that. You, you intrinsically know whether you want to do it or not and whether it's the right thing to do. And um, that was really it. I just thought this is, this is the fork in the road. And I definitely knew I wanted to get into research and this was the perfect opportunity. So it, uh, it, it literally presented itself to me and I couldn't say no. Has it thrown any surprises at you or is it what you expected? Um, uh, has it thrown surprise? I mean, yeah, definitely. Because there are aspects to, it's one thing to kind of like understand research on paper. It's, it's another thing to actually see it happen in real life and, and contribute to it happening. And the one thing that I have to, so we ran a very tightly controlled eight day lab protocol with, with humans, um, as opposed to mice for once. <laughs> uh, I, I have phenomenal appreciation now for humans who volunteer to do research, you know, and it's like, you know, you're used to reading a study and it's like 16 healthy volunteers, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like what I'm now able to see is between the lines in that because we had people eight days, we were controlling when they went to sleep and they were in these little sleep labs that are like soundproof and temperature controlled and they're, they're creepy. The sleep labs are not, um, they're designed for this perfect night's sleep, but we were feeding them the same food every day. Um, we were, you know, it was a pretty invasive test protocol. So we were taking blood every 30 minutes. They were getting their metabolic rate measured every half an hour. Um, and, you know, there were tears. There were people questioning whether they wanted to do it. There were some people were absolutely fine. And there was just this range of emotions that you would expect from human beings doing this kind of thing. So um, I think the biggest I guess, surprise in a way, pleasant surprise, but also challenges was, was overseeing, you know, the day-to-day -day running of, of a study like that. And then, you know, it's kind of funny because, you know, you're, you're, I, I guess from law, one thing I was used to was being thrown into the deep end, but, but this was definitely an experience when you're kind of there going like, okay, I need to make sure this show stays on the road. Um, and yeah, you're, you're, you know, you are dealing with real human beings and, I think I definitely have now a much greater appreciation for what it takes to produce and do, you know, good, like tightly controlled human studies. And then whether or not how replicable they actually are in real life. I think. Right. Right. And that's the thing we were deliberately doing a mechanistic study, you know, like our, our study was not designed to give us like, insights into you know sleep wake in the real world or, or for we were specifically trying to tease out the different contributions of like people's behavioral cycles so their their meal timing and sleep wake timing versus actual circadian rhythms um, and so yeah like ours uh, the, the overall grant that we have as as for this project is two kind of arms to it and the university of Aberdeen are doing the other limb and that's that's more replicable free living because they're doing it with uh, people who are are kind of going about their normal lives um so they're doing a kind of weight loss intervention and we were doing the really like mechanistic kind of lab stuff to try and tease out what's actually going on under the hood so yeah i mean it's um i definitely get why people do use mice now. <laughs> i think more of an appreciation for because uh, it's easy to be critical of, of, of you know particularly in chrono nutrition it's like oh right another another 
time-restricted feeding study has come out in rats, you know. <laughs> but, you know, rats don't talk back. And <laughs> they don't, they don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. To, to be honest, yeah, I mean, there is there is a big move in research that, that was another actual surprise that I had last year was um, because I, I applied for funding for a new study. I didn't get it, unfortunately, but to um, a couple of societies that, because I want to continue doing human research, there's various research trusts now, the Humane Research Trust or Animal Free Research UK, who are specifically making funding available to reduce the use of, of animals in research. Um, now, we, we will never ever get to a point where all research is animal free or we'll simply stop making advances in 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 health sciences um so like th there is a reality to the need for it um but i absolutely think that we can find ways to reduce the overall use and numbers um across the board in, in different disciplines but yeah it's um stop using the really cute ones <laughs> yeah 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 stop <laughs> yeah those do you ever see have you ever seen those um those genetically bred obese rats they're actually like they're so cute you know, like, give us one, give us one of them like they're like they're massive and they've this little head sticking out it's like a south park like drawing rats <laughs> oh yeah oh the ear on the rat that's a whole new level that's that's not yeah. but i think uh, what people are probably getting from the start of this conversation with you, Alan, is the main reason which why we wanted to talk to you on this podcast is from all of my listenings of you and now speaking with you momentarily is you have a really good broad scope and understanding of nutrition as a whole. Uh, and because of that, you, you tend to come uh, forward with different ideas that are a little bit more context specific, but also like broad speaking so that people can get a better mm. understanding of how this actually impacts us as opposed to just going, Mechanistic yeah, to add to that, we um, have the drug guy on, Roderick Chavez. I wonder what we're going to talk to him about. Or we'll have a power lifter on. I wonder what we're going to talk to him about. But I feel like it's really an open slate of you, especially because before I studied nutrition, I got a, a bachelor in social science. So I understand the political, cultural, socioeconomic mm -hmm. reasons or barriers to good health and good nutrition. And sometimes nutritionists up in their Eiffel Tower are just prescribing maybe vitamin B shots to starving African children, which isn't right. missing the point, but you actually, when I use the word holistic, I really mean it when I say the stuff you put yeah. out, very holistic. And I just love the deep understanding that you have and that you give to the topic. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. I think someone asked me that recently. Did I, did I think that being in, in law and, and coming from that background where like I did, I did history and English for my undergrad and then I did law afterwards and someone kind of asked, do you think that's actually helped with science? I'd never actually really thought about the question before. And then I kind of sat back and I thought about it. And although they're completely unrelated fields, I do think that there is some benefit to having some previous exposure to, to something else beforehand like so in your case social science or in my case law which gives you a wider context to another discipline um, and and although they may seem unrelated actually they'll have an influence on the way that you think and approach 
whatever you're looking at now. And so for me, with nutrition, I think in, in law you're always, or I certainly was, kind of conditioned to not just think about what's actually on paper, but like what's the application of this? How are the different ways that this could be interpreted? Um, and looking at things through, through a broader lens um, as opposed to what was just on the paper. And so I actually think in hindsight now the dots kind of joined in that sense. And the way I think about nutrition is very much not just, oh, well, this is on paper, but it's like, okay, but well, one, how have, have, you know, these findings come to be like, can we stand over them? Like what's behind the findings, so to speak, in terms of like the methodological integrity. And then also, you know, what's the wider context into which this finding is coming into, like what's the world it's coming into and, and how does it influence that? And so I definitely now realize that actually that shaping of the way that I thought about things from a completely unrelated discipline that's not scientific has had a massive bearing on the way that I think now that I'm in science. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite thankful for that mesh of different, like, yeah, like ideas and, and, and kind of thinking that, that kind of whirls around in my head now about nutrition and, and how we should think about it. Maybe. That's super cool. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of personal responsibility people put on individuals. Like mm. it's your fat. Sorry, it's your fat. It's your fault. You're fat. <laughs> <laughs> it and, is your fat. Own it. And that's not really helpful to shame people. Um, and mm. just that lack of ignorance just is not helpful. Um, and speaking of ignorance, I had a client recently email me. I, I sent her to a gastro because she was having some issues. And the gastro said, you need to do keto. And I've mm. been working with this lady for nothing wrong with keto, but I've been working with this lady for two years. And there's no reason that she specifically, like she's not epileptic. She doesn't have a specific form of cancer. Like there's no reason. And then I asked her. Um, she's hypothyroid though, correct? Uh, she got her thyroid removed and now she's right. managing with T3. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyways, and she said to me, I don't believe that there was a reason that he told me that for any specific condition. Cause I asked her the question. She just said, it's because he thought I would be helped by losing weight. And so keto was the recommendation. So this is right. stemming on from ignorance here. Um, which is very problematic when there's one way or the highway, a dogmatic belief. Right. Um, Dean actually has a diet that he would like to introduce. I've, I've got a new dogmatic orientated diet, and that is the, uh. the It Depends diet. Is <laughs> <laughs> an oxymoron almost in the situation because it's not dogmatic at all. <laughs> no. But if we all follow the It Depends diet, we likely will make better informed choices. Could you talk our listeners through why it's so, I know you love this word, problematic, to yes. have one way or the highway a dogmatic nutrition? Yeah, I think even with the example that you've just mentioned, there's like, there's several things to unpick. Like there's, first there's the, the dogma aspect of, of what, what the recommendation was. Um, my opinion on this the more I kind of look at maybe nutrition through a kind of more 
I guess, cognitive lens and, and understanding human thinking and, and behavior. And, and we're just really bad at thinking. <laughs> you know, that's why we have science is to like account for our default chimp-like way of thinking about things. And we're prone to in-group bias. We're prone to cognitive dissonance. We're prone to all these things. And that happens in our day-to-day lives and it's usually harmless, right? It's just like, oh, I prefer this brand of cereal over this. Like these are relatively inconsequential. But when it comes to nutrition, we're talking about something that all human beings have to do. We have to obtain nutrition some somehow um, as an organism. But we're also talking about this fields not just as as a basic human need but also as a scientific discipline so there's an uncomfortable overlap between something that's intrinsic to us and therefore is part of our self-construct and not just at an individual level but at a society level um, or you know at a, at a kind of wider cultural level uh, and and a health science and I think that nutrition is probably unique in that it's the only scientific discipline that I can think of that is also simultaneously a belief system, you know, like that there isn't a, a, like, I'm sure there, there probably is the term, but like, you know, no one is studying like, you know, like Christian science, right? <laughs> they're, like, they're, they're kind of incompatible, but there is nutrition science. And unfortunately most people at the, at the kind of individual level aren't necessarily driven by science they're driven by their personal preferences they're maybe they're influenced by religious factors um, in terms of what ends up on their plate maybe they're influenced by cultural regional factors um, the tradition within their households and all of the socioeconomic variables that go into it and so nutrition becomes a really like difficult subject a problematic area to have any sort of discourse around because you're trying to talk at the level of science And then you get this doubling up with a belief system that an individual has about that diet or about, about health. Um, And the the second part of, of, of that kind of story that you told that that's a problem in this context is the fact that if this was just playing out on the day to day level for normal individuals, it's one thing I generally expect that I would expect to, to talk with a lay person who maybe for various reasons has found their way to a certain diet. And maybe it's the first diet that has made them feel good about themselves or have energy or lose weight or all of these things. And and suddenly they become emotionally invested in this diet. Um, And they're not scientifically trained and they don't understand how to read research. So, so I have a degree of empathy with how someone like that can become very dogmatic about their diet. And there are people that I want to try and kind of like have a dialogue with and say, well, okay, I I know where you've got to this point, but like, you know, let's talk. The other problem is when other healthcare professionals with the most rudimentary understanding of nutrition, with the most superficial understanding of nutrition, particularly medical doctors who get no training in the subject whatsoever, but assume that because they read a paper once upon a time in med school, they're basically scientists, start taking this literal, oh, well, you know, I, I've, I've done my research, I've, I've read my papers. Actually, all they've done is they've already arrived at this point They've arrived at keto is the best, vegan is the best, whatever is the best. And because they're a medical doctor, 
they've worked backwards from that preconceived belief to build their belief scaffolding with selected papers, selected references, selected bits of research that support the conclusion that they came to before they even before they even started looking at research. That's much more problematic to unpack because you end up with someone that assumes that they know as much about the research as you do, and you end up with this dialogue that on the face of it seems scientific, but is really just them dismissing anything you offer against them because it doesn't agree with their, or accord with their worldview, and then throwing some random paper back at you and assuming that what they're saying is a competing, an equally competing hypothesis or, or an equally competing point of view. And that's the problem, is engaging with, I guess this is not just medical professionals, I, 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 I doctor bash a little bit when it comes to nutrition because... You know, they're responsible for a huge amount of garbage. And, and that's not just my opinion, by the way. A study came out last month that was really damning that looked at nutrition books on the shelves and, the, and, and pseudoscientific claims in them. And 35% of them were written by people with, with, that were written by medical doctors. That's a disproportionate amount of nutrition nonsense on the shelves that's written by people with, from the public's perspective, huge authority bias. Yeah. Um, but but th- this has become every other field. Like I was in a massive argument recently on Instagram with a physiotherapist who was just just throwing these like fifty line like incoherent spew kind of like opinions at me about like uh, he was a carnivore diet person, <laughs> and and I'm sitting here and I'm just like, and he's actually assuming that everything he's saying is like, is, is holds as much weight as, as the kind of counter arguments I'm giving him. So I, I think we have a problem with nutrition where one at the individual level, or even at a kind of group level, there's a, uh, you know, a huge amount of like belief system um, thinking that goes into, into what people do with their diet. And um, there's nutrition is a very, sensitive subject in that sense because it's a part of person a person's identity and then uh, kind of that flows with that is increasingly you have healthcare professionals from different disciplines turning their attention to nutrition because everyone loves nutrition right now it's 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 so hot <laughs> and they're also assuming that because you know like i said once upon a time they did a degree where they read a science paper that they're basically you know a nutrition scientist and so they form these opinions with almost more zeal than people in the public um so it's a really annoying landscape to try and navigate right exactly with people thinking that opinions is the same thing as facts which is not the case right. and people not probably understanding the scope of practice of a general practitioner yeah and i can't uh, as a personal trainer, before I got into nutrition, I, I, I kind of understand the pressures to, to work outside of your scope of practice, although I feel it's very mm-hmm. difficult to do so. Because as a personal trainer, you focus on exercise in that one-hour session. And people will ask you questions that they really should be asking a physiotherapist or a nutritionist or a psychologist. Uh, and perhaps there's 
some element of fear from a general practitioner that if they continue referring or not giving the patient what they're after, then maybe they'll move on to a practitioner who will. Um, right. Yeah, so perhaps, perhaps there's no other. I think there is. I think as well, you know, because I'm involved in a, in a couple of kind of organizations that are trying to increase you know, nutrition in the medical curriculum. So I, I'm, I'm, it's funny because every now and then, like I'll get, you know, uh, a kind of angry slash frustrated medic will, you know, <laughs> hit me up with a, a bit of a, a, an annoyed DM being like, you know, well, we, you know, we do need to give our patients advice. And I'm like, I'm all for that. I'm all for that. I'm actively involved and want to give medical professionals in particular, primary care physicians, better resources and nutrition knowledge and education to help them better impart this message. The problem is we're late to the party, but we already have organizations that are openly dogmatically low carbohydrate keto that have been running or, you know, conferences for, for exclusively for medical professionals for three or four years. So my worry now is, and I know this from the insights that I get into some of these organizations, just in the UK, I can't speak for Australia, that like, you know, there is a cult of low carb amongst, amongst GPs in the UK. And it's terrifying that throughout the country, you have people in primary care telling someone that may be a heart disease risk. Oh, don't worry, you've been lied to. The dietary guidelines are a lie. You can, you can eat more saturated fat. Just cut the carbs. Don't take your statin. Like that's terrifying, mm-hmm. um, and I know I know that that's real. Um, and so, uh, as much as I'm all for nutrition education in medicine and actively engage with it, I also don't accept when doctors get a bit precious about criticism of where things have gone so far. Um, and it's a profession that doesn't take criticism particularly well when it comes to these issues because it's used to its ivory tower and kind of shielding itself from from any sort of criticism. So I have a very low threshold for 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 tolerance for you know when people try and essentially kind of excuse what's gone on or, or kind of diminish it. I'm like, no, you have to turn and face this. Like it is a problem. It's not just the keto side. Like there's. There's whole there's a, a plant-based doctors alliance here, which is as equally dogmatic, mm-hmm. and and it's it's any dietary belief system when it when it when it comes uh, as a prefix to someone's title as a healthcare professional, it's a problem, um, and we ha- again we have that all over the country, and you know there's there's as much as there's issues with you know, the keto low carb aspect in terms of how that might impact someone's health. There's, there's, there's equally issues with, you know, forcing kind of like uh, either, you know, what some degree of, of plant-based or, or wholly vegan diet on people if they're not prepared for it. Um, you know, there's risks of nutritional deficiencies, which that community just will not face up to. Um, there are issues with, the cycle. I, 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 this is. I had this chat with Danny Lennon a, a while ago. We were talking about the potential for harm with with diets, which people assume are benign. With with low carb keto, mm, we were saying that perhaps the risk for harm there is more actually 
physical. Like, you know, if, if someone just ditches all the fiber and starts eating all the bacon and butter, like that's a heart disease risk. Like you can deny it all you want, but it's a heart disease risk. With, with, the, with the kind of vegan side, it may be a bit more insidious in a psychological sense because, you know, it's a, it's, it's a diet that obviously by nature is defined by restrictions or exclusion. And although it's only 1% to 2% of the general population, it's a quarter, a quarter of presentations in eating disorder clinics. Like, that's an enormous disconnect. Like, that's a huge overrepresentation. And so... Uh, and then there are also like particularly the most vulnerable group for this kind of where this kind of dogmatic kind of vegan side of the conversation is going is infants and early life stage development. And again, there is just a refusal in that community to acknowledge that there's any risk to feeding fucking almond milk to a six month old baby. Um, and we could be doing if this is something that parents are happy to just like, or, or people under the guise of what they think is good medical advice are going to force onto kids, like there could be really serious consequences for those children developmentally, you know, and we won't know about it because of the nature of studying these things on, for 10 to 15 years time, you know, um, and then we'll realize that there were consequences to, you know, like long chain omega-3 fatty acid insufficiency, um, you know, certain B12, iodine, other like nutrient insufficiencies in that life stage that could have really detrimental impacts to, to cognitive and behavioral development. Um, so this is the problem. When a diet is portrayed as a panacea, irrespective of what label you want to give it and what foods appear on the plate in that diet, if it's treated as like a, an absolute panacea, which all diets do, whether it's keto or vegan, they all assume that the diet is flawless and there is no need to do anything but follow the diet. Then we're into problems because it's just not the case. So yeah, I think, I think we need to be able to talk about this stuff without people getting all kind of knickers in a twist over like, Oh, you, you, you questioned my perfect diet. It's like, no, I just think, you know, maybe let's, maybe let's talk about how we can make this less of a risk for people. Um, and we need to be open about that. Yeah. I've always found <clears throat> at a, at a, an interesting concept in the science faculty in regards to nutrition and, and exercise that we refer to the allied uh, health professional concept quite regularly, except yet yeah. always still somebody, like you said, in their ivory tower that wants to disassociate themselves with the rest of us because they mm -hmm. call themselves to be the God almighty. And it's typically like my degrees in exercise science. And in our world, it was the physios. Like we're all allied right. professionals except for the physios because the physios are the top dogs. And then right. in the profession, it's the actual MDs or the GPs that seem to be all the way up here. And then mm -hmm. that is like our, our society also associates that the same. So like right now, yeah. you don't hold the same weight as a general practitioner di uh, doctor will, despite the mm -hmm. fact and you're specialized right right and you're specialized yeah and then you know I, i'm not definitely portraying nutrition as like a perfect field nutrition has its own in-house issues it's got a massive like exactly that issue you just said happens with dietetics where you know there's this assumption that like oh we're the dietitians we're the only ones qualified to do this that and the other like everyone else isn't as qualified as us and therefore it does not know as much as us and it's a really problematic narrative and it's flat out not true you know dietitians are certainly specialized for clinical practice 
Um, and I wouldn't want to work in, in a clinical setting. I don't want to be in a hospital with a tube down someone's throat, like optimizing whatever has to go into that person. Like, um, you know, and, and, and that's not being disparaging, by the way. Like I spent six weeks in uh, a children's hospital in, in Canada getting, yeah, I was fortunate through, through a friend to uh, shadow a dietitian there for six weeks just to get a bit of an insight into clinical nutrition. And, and it was fascinating stuff. It was also fascinating with me in my head going, I never want to do this. So, you know, the, of course, there's a, I don't know why dietitians feel so threatened by non-dietetic nutrition professionals that they have to like, you know, have these silly little like trusted to hashtag trusted dietitian type campaigns, you know, but they do. And, but like dietitians, like most people, for example, in my nutrition department at the university wouldn't be dietitians, but they would be nutritionists. Um, and a lot of that is because they were scientists first, um, as opposed to like going through dietetics. Um, and you know, nutritionists are very good at working in public health, working in industry, like this, yeah, this, this kind of hierarchical kind of yeah ego tripping that goes on in various professions. Like it doesn't help the public. <laughs> this is the bottom line. Like if we're, if we are broadly under this umbrella of healthcare professionals, then irrespective of discipline, our goal is hopefully I would think making people's lives better in, in the general population um, in with whatever kind of specific indications they have that arise. And so like our little catty infighting doesn't serve that purpose, you know, especially with nutrition where you've got a title like nutritionist, which broadly speaking is not regulated in a lot of places. Um, and we would be far better off like actually getting some regulatory footing for that title rather than like kind of bitching back and forth within the profession about like who's giving what advice, you know? Humans love to be on teams and be in tribes. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if just another extension of tribalism, nutritionists, dietetics, GPs, yeah. and then even then we can go into keto doctors and lifestyle doctors and low carb doctors and these tribes mm. just keep extending. Yeah. And I think the problem now is the information age um, is very much a famous double-edged sword. And on the one hand, we have all of this access to be able to communicate globally and, 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 and learn and have access to information. And on the other hand, where previously someone's, access to a tribe would have been relatively local now if you adopt even the most insane diet in the world or insane belief system in the world you will find your tribe you know it's like that the flat earth documentary on netflix which is they hold their conference you know and there's people from all over the world that come you know and you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're all there because they have this sense of belonging that they've been given to by this, by this belief system. And, you know, I, they're harmless, you know, but the, those conferences also go on for keto, it goes on for plant-based, it goes on for carnivore, you know, so it goes on for a lot more, um, you know, kind of belief systems that are potentially harmful to people if we're if we're not careful about where the conversation goes so yeah i think as much as the internet's been great it gives people access to even the most niche tribe that they could 
possibly want to be a part of, they can be a part of, you know, they're on some Reddit sub forum for, like, you know. <laughs> Who do you believe to be the, uh, the flat earthers of nutrition? So, so for me, I actually have a very specific group that I, that I use that term for. And, and it is for me, the, the, the kind of overall low carb movement the, the specific reason why I call them the flat earthers is because low carb comes mixed with all of this denialism within the diet. It's not just, I don't know why, like at the end of the day, what, what at a macronutrient level, like, lower carbohydrate, higher fat, right? At that level, we're not into any problems because someone could just be eating all of the olive oil and nuts and oily fish and these kind of like Mediterranean unsaturated fats, but that's not what the diet's about. The denialism in low carb, high fat diets proceeds from this like narrative review of uh, nutrition science history that once upon a time there was this scientist who demonized saturated fat and blah 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 now we have a guy so it rejects diet guidelines as a conspiracy uh saturated fat was wrongly implicated in heart disease it was actually vegetable oil fats and there's no risk uh of heart disease associated with cholesterol because that's all like a big pharma conspiracy because they got the food guidelines in because big sugar paid them and now the drug companies can give you drugs and all of this shit meshes together into the low carb belief system so as a diet it's fundamentally characterized by denialism and everyone in the low carb movement you know rejects that like there is any risk to heart disease for high blood cholesterol levels. In fact, some of them actively pursue increasing their LDL cholesterol levels as much as possible. Now, when it comes to health sciences, there are probably, I mean, I can't even think of another, the body of evidence that supports a causal role for LDL cholesterol in initiating and driving the process of atherosclerosis and as a result over the long-term atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is as comprehensive as literally exists in health sciences. Like there is nothing stronger and it's a comparable to me. It's a, it's a comparable body of evidence to the one that would suggest the earth is round. So I call the, the, the specifically for this reason, I call the kind of low carb cholesterol denialist community flat earthers of nutrition because they they don't have any evidence to rebut what's there. So all they can do is just reject what's already there for some random reason. And what's funny about it is usually the reasons that they reject it for is something that's actually accounted for in the literature. So if you, again, if you've seen that flat earth documentary, what's amazing about it is they go about setting up some really elegant experiments where they're like, right, if this comes off, this shows that the, that the, that the earth's surface is, you know, is not curved. There's no curve. And then they do the experiments. They're like, Oh, right. So they obviously, they disprove their own hypothesis. And then of course they, they reject the finding and they're like, Oh, the experiment must be wrong. It's like, no, no, you, you, you found it. Right. So it's the same with it's, uh, uh, Gary Tolbs esque. 
Yeah, exactly. So, so you get the same thing within the low carb community where they're like, well, actually it's not LDL, it's inflammation. And it's like, oh, well, that's interesting because we can actually explain that. Yeah, sure. Inflammation is important, but <laughs> so, or well, you know, it's not LDL, it's these other atherogenic lipoproteins. It's like, yeah, no, we, we know that too. That's, that's not controversial. Like, and so they offer these excuses or dismissals that we can already explain in the research. And then you just get around to some tautological nonsense. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it's the same with Gary Taubes and, and David Ludwig and the research side with the carb insulin hypothesis. And although, although his back and forth, Ludwig's back and forth with Kevin Hall has gotten kind of ugly sometimes on social media. I think Kevin Hall's in, an incredible scientist, probably the best scientist in nutrition of, of the last 10 years, because his transparency is unbelievable, um, particularly at a time like this. And his transparency stands in such stark contrast to the, to the low carb, even researchers, people doing that research who are very murky and untransparent. And yeah, I, I think for me, flat earth just comes back to, I think, like I said, I'm, you know, this isn't, I think the, the kind of vegan slash plant-based paradigm has its own issues, but it, at the fundamental level, like if you ate more vegetables and fruit, you, you, you know, there's going to be some net benefit, but it's just, there, there's, there's no element of denialism of like health risks in that movement. Um, what I think there is a denial for, for in that movement is more so this idea that like any, any animal, like food of animal origin is inherently harmful just because of its origin like it's just nonsense you know and i'm like i'm all for talking about the sustainability and the environmental aspects of this but we can't get we can't be having that conversation on a premise on a false premise that the reason these foods need to be removed from your diet is because they're harmful but let's also talk about the environment so this is so my difficulty although the low carbers are the flat earthers of nutrition for me the difficulty with the, the kind of plant-based paradigm is that it's a chameleon, right? Like what does plant-based even mean? Like I can make an argument that our original dietary guidelines were plant-based because the three bottom rungs of the pyramid were whole grains and vegetables and fruit, you know? So like plant-based is so loose in its definition. It doesn't imply animal exclusive, but that's generally what people mean when they say it. And so what I find in my arguments with people from, from that kind of paradigm now is, you know, we start out from this place of like, you know, a plant-based diet is, you can't argue that it's the best diet for human health and, and dairy gives you cancer. And then we end up back at like Mediterranean diet. It's just like, for fuck's okay. sake. <laughs> People maybe want to think plant-centric diets, which should not be confused for plant-based diets. Yeah, or solid-based diets. Yeah, be a vegan and add some meat. Or, yeah, and right. diets. Or... Yeah. But it's like, this is, this is what I'm all, I'm just like, when people are like, you can't deny that, a, you know, all of the research is now emerging that says, and I'm like, now emerging? Where, where, like, where have you been for the last 50 years? Like, point, someone point to me anything that says that from the 1950s onwards in nutrition science, the cornerstone of nutrition advice has not been based around foods that are plants, like, you know, yeah. like vegetables, whole grains, fiber. Like these have been cornerstone nutrition recommendations 
certainly since the on paper since the 1970s so like why does it need an ideology now to like we've been trying to get people to eat more vegetables and fruit for 50 years the reason we can't is nothing to do with and people are like people just need to know they can't just go around eating an animal-based diet and i'm just like um most people in western cultures don't have a choice <laughs> like if you're if you, you know if you're a single mom you know and you're on a low wage and you have but put it this way this 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 tends to at least get people kind of listening as a statistic but there was a study recently in the UK that looked at how much of your disposable income you would have to spend just to meet the five a day recommendation servings of fruits and vegetables and if you were in the bottom tier of of earning in the UK you would have to spend 75% of your disposable income just to meet five a day. If you're in the top rung of earning, you spend 6%. That is, that is wealth disparity influencing health disparity at a population level. So I, 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 again, as much as I have a low tolerance for like the kind of statin denialist, cholesterol denialist, low carb movement, I have a particular little bit of disdain when I get into conversations with either fully vegan or like plant-based who uniformly are urban, young, white, wealthy, privileged, privileged, posting all of the lovely chickpea curry photographs and the tofu this and whatever. And I'm all for that, fine. But when they start telling me that socioeconomics aren't a barrier to their diet, I, I fucking lose it a little bit because it's just showing me how it doesn't, it, a can of chickpeas costs what? And I'm like, it's not about what the economic cost is. Socioeconomic barriers are not just monetary. Like there are people, people really struggle to conceptualize this. But like when I talk to friends of mine in public health, for example, or my GP friends. What two, a couple of my GP friends work in really socially deprived areas in the UK, right? The, 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 the people that they see in the clinic, often their only cooking utensil is a microwave. Wow. They're only cook, they don't have a cooker. They don't have a fridge. They don't have a fridge. Yeah. And so, you know, the, 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 the idea that the world is going vegan to save the planet, like we just need to get rid of that conversation because it's never happening. And it's a more destructive conversation than it is constructive. Um, And it it, it really does grate me when I get into these conversations where people assume that everyone can adopt this diet uh, because it's so easy and so cheap and blah, blah, blah. But everyone that's saying it is, like I said, you know, like urban, wealthy and healthy already. And it's just, it's... It's, it's really just seeing the world through their lens. Um, and, and that's the problem. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think we need to be a bit more honest about all of these kind of conversations in nutrition, regardless of what diet we're talking about. Yeah, but see, this isn't as easy as saying to someone two words, go keto. <laughs> right, yeah. All of this is a bit more complicated. I, I've tried to explain, you know, the cultural, political, socioeconomic factors that limit people's health-seeking behaviors or whatever. And if I say they haven't enjoyed the privilege that you and I have enjoyed, people, specifically white males, 
seem to advance mm. to the word privilege as if I'm saying that, I don't know, they haven't worked hard for what they have. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just, the word privilege right. just means you it's, don't have to deal with mm. factors of oppression. Yeah. That well, that's, that's I, I imagine their reaction is largely because they have Jordan Peterson posters in their bedroom. Um, so... <laughs> If they were urban vegans, they wouldn't have Jordan Peterson in their bedroom because he's right. Exactly, he's gone. He's gone carnivore with Michaela, hasn't he? Like fuck's sake, she's I written a book. Such a dick. Yeah, yeah, but 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 yeah. I mean, there there is. You're absolutely right. Um, people, and again, particularly white males, that there is this rejection of and. Uh, but I do get it. I do get it generally with vegan as well, irrespective of sex. Is this kind of they really get their backs up when you mention the word privilege? And it's like I'm not saying this is a negative. I'm just saying that even in the context of COVID nineteen, you know, like when people have been like, "Well, how are you doing?" and it's like, "Well, I'm fine because I can walk around to the shop and I can buy good food and I can cook and I right and I have cooking utensils and I can make food and it's all fine." Whereas, you know, you're looking at some of the statistics coming out in the UK now about food poverty during COVID-19. And it's, it's, it's unconscionable that a wealthy democratic country should have 5 million kids hungry right now because of this crisis. 5 million kids are going without food. Like that's, if we heard that statistic about a third world country in the Middle East or in the subcontinent or we, we would not bat an eyelid. Um, and it would, oh God, that's awful. Like this is happening on our doorsteps. I'm not sure what the statistics are in Oz, but generally the UK, Australia and the US are kind of tightly correlated on a lot of these socioeconomic issues. So I can't imagine it's, it's much better. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is, you know, we, 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 privilege is not a negative thing. It's just a reality. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think you're right. The suggestion seems to be that like, oh, um, that it's the privilege that is the reason. I think they get their backs up because they assume that it's the privilege that's the reason. We're suggesting it's the privilege that's the reason that they're able to follow this diet or be healthy. And it's like, no, it's just that you have access to engage with these behaviors a bit more. So yeah. it's not that you, because plenty of people in privileged scenarios equally have access and have heart disease <laughs> and diabetes. And, you know, so it's all it is, is about access. It doesn't speak to whether someone actually avails of that access. Um, and so I, I think that that's generally how I try and translate it to maybe disarm that situation a bit more. I'm like, I'm not saying you haven't worked hard and you don't train hard and you don't, you know, choose to eat a, a good diet and all that stuff. I'm just saying you have the, you have better access to those things than other people. It's unfortunate um, that we can't just say the word and people know what we mean. Like I call someone Italian and that's not an insult. I call someone privileged. It just is. You just are. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it, 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 I mean, I think the, the, the privilege thing is like triggering maybe because we're in, we're in a funny space right now with a lot of various social issues where we can't talk about anything anymore. Like we, we cannot, you know, and you, you saw that happen 
you know, over the last few years in the States in particular, like college campuses being shut down. Like I, one story of uh, a professor who lost his tenure because during a lecture, I don't, I can't remember what the context of what he was saying was, but describing something and kind of said flippantly, yeah, it's the kind of thing that would make you want to shoot yourself, right? And the, the place went ballistic. Well, like the like social justice warriors among in the lecture went ballistic because like it was implying suicide. Like I, I don't know. Anyway, guy lost his job. So we, we have a lot of we have a lot of kind of you know we we have all of these disintegrations of like social structures into various groups now that are all like crying out for recognition and identity. And on, on, on the one level, that's fine, but it's fine if the conversation is genuinely about recognition and inclusivity. Those tend to be buzzwords for these kind of conversations, but fundamentally they're not about recognition and inclusivity. They're about like segregation and exclusivity and shouting, shouting anyone else down that is not me, my island, my tribe, my, my this, that, and the other. So as much as, you know, we've been talking about this in the context of diet, we're seeing it play out in relation to a lot of different kind of social justice questions. And I think it's problematic for, you know, how we kind of move forward with a lot, with a lot of these issues. And it makes having a lot of these conversations very difficult. Um, and I'm not sure what the barrier is to that. Um, I'm not sure what the hurdle is to that barrier either, uh, or, or like or how we get over it. Um, I think it means that like, for as much as we have these progressive movements now, I, I'm not sure how, prog- I think they're termed progressive because it's about recognition of like, some, you know, for example, gender issues or identity issues and all these kind of stuff. But those they're, they're generally like social norm questions. They're not necessarily questions that are like have a bearing on, you know, political factors. Um, and I think, the, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how we get over these, these kind of barriers to these conversations that we're having where everyone gets so offended yeah. so easily by just trying to have the conversation. Maybe I can make a suggestion that is not a solution, but trying to define the difference between being politically correct and just mm. jumping at any opportunity to be offended. Um, right. I uh, actually am all for political correctness because we shouldn't go around yelling the N-word at people. Or, right, yeah. Like, that's just horrible. But also if you say, you know, something, a flippant comment like, oh, it would make you want to shoot yourself or that person is black, you know, or that's just, just a, an observation. Those things mm. aren't, well, aren't intended to be offensive. They're not the N-word. They're not saying you should shoot yourself or mm. anything like that. So being politically correct means that you're not offending anyone or intentionally offending anyone or eliciting hate or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But we mm-hmm. should confuse political correctness with just the general discourse. Mm. Right, right. And, and that's the problem. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. everyone's just like gets off their high horse a little bit and realizes that we're all human. There's not really a hierarchy. No one's better. Let's all figure this out. Um, yeah. Then maybe we can have a more logical discussion. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think we, for, for moving forward with a lot of the important questions that we have about kind of diet and health and, and, you know, diet and planetary health, and, and these are really important questions. We need to be able to have these conversations without everyone getting just like flat out insult or without anyone deciding that they've taken offense for reasons that people having the conversation even realize were were offensive to someone who's now declared it to be offensive to them. Um, And I I think that's a problem. And one one area that you can see that kind of play out quite a lot um, with nutrition and health has been with the kind of non-diet health at every size movements where a lot of the issues that go into that are nothing to do with nutrition at all. They're to do with issues of like body image, fat activism, all of these relevant kind of social justice issues. But what happens is those relevant social justice issues then get kind of meshed with the evidence side of things. And you have this weird, and evidence and activism don't mix for the most part. They mix with climate change simply because 97% of sane scientists and, and humans across the planet accept that we are warming the planet. So it, it's, it's fine at that level because the science is relatively settled that we are warming the planet. Therefore, you can move from the evidence side to the activism side, and, and that can take over. But with a lot of these other issues, they don't mix because let's talk about you know the, the weight aspect, for example. Yes, we know that at certain levels of, of, of BMI, it's not a good proxy for health status. Um, so there are, there are issues there. Yes, it is possible to be defined as overweight or even, you know, obese by, by BMI and actually have high levels of cardiorespiratory fitness and engage in multiple health promoting behaviors, whether it's diet or exercise or low, low stress levels. You know, and we know that someone of a BMI of say 34, for example, that engages in a lot of these behaviors would actually be at a lower risk than someone with a BMI of 22 who, who's sedentary and smokes and has visceral adiposity and all of these things. So yeah, sure. There, there's evidence in that sense of that. The problem is the activism then comes in and takes hold of this conversation. And suddenly we end up with, there's no risk to weight at all. It's, it's completely fine. It's a social construct. Um, you know, all the, all, the, all the research lies. You can just be healthy if you, like, you know, believe in your health or, or whatever. You know, it's just like celebrate yourself and all this. And, it's, and again, so much of these little points are, are great. Yeah, we want people to celebrate themselves. Yes, absolutely. Fat, you know, like stigma, weight stigma, it, like, it is, is such a massive problem in society and in healthcare, we absolutely need to address that. The World Health Organization published a report on weight stigma last year. It's like, we're all about all these conversations, but we can't use that to then say that there is absolutely no risk whatsoever to a certain level of adiposity, right? So so, so for me, that, that area is an example of where some of these like social justice narratives, which are really valid, kind of mesh uncomfortably with objective evidence and and get turned into something different and you know 
the problem is, and particularly actually in Australia, for whatever reason, I talk to my kind of like dietitian friends in Oz, like Australia has a militant health at every size movement, like within, within dietetics. And like people get shouted down, like ostracized from the community if they're like, you know, a bariatric dietitian working with people, for example, to, to lose weight. And it's just like, so now we're in this place where weight loss is never okay, ever. And that's as crippling a narrative as a weight stigma narrative in many respects. And they can't see that that narrative is, is as damaging in a certain context as just un, un kind of unbridled weight stigma. So for me, yeah, that, that conversation tends to be an example of what we're just talking about where, you know, evidence and activism don't mix. And when you try and have a productive or objective conversation about the issues, you just get, I'm offended, you've offended me, blah, 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 blah. And suddenly you're into this, you're, you're just divorced from being able to have an objective conversation about, well, let's talk about risk at, at different weights. Let's talk about whether all of these health-promoting behaviors really do reduce your risk over the long term. Let's talk about this concept of metabolically healthy obese and what the research actually shows. And you can't have those conversations because, and I had, I, I had this conversation once I was speaking to someone who, you know, identified with, with the kind of like fat activism movement. And I, I said, you know, well, let's talk about this concept of metabolically healthy obese there. And, and that, that, that turn, it was just like, that, that turns disgusting. You know, it was like obese was suddenly this. And I was kind of like, this is just a term that's used in the research. Yeah, but the researchers are all stigmatizing. I was just like, fuck. Yeah. Like, we're going, how? How? Where? I don't know what to do here. <laughs> I, I relate to what you're saying so much because I have a really good friend um, of mine who's a huge Hayes supporter. And, um, I mean, it's it's quite horrible that women's bodies are sexualized so much and they have to fit into this really tight idea of what attractive is. So in one sense, I, I totally support body positivity and, and that whole movement. But because it's such an emotional movement for some women, my really good friend who I have this exact discussion with constantly, um, I, she shuts the conversation down and, and every piece of evidence that I bring to the table is she counter argues with something that's not valid or is a straw man argument or she doesn't accept. And it's not mm -hmm. my opinion. This is what the evidence is suggesting. And I'm supporting the movement, but I'm also saying this is how far we can take it. And then this mm -hmm. is what the evidence is suggesting, but yeah. that's just right. accepted when something is so emotional. Yeah. Right. Exactly. A greater representation of the, the potential implications of dogmatism in that. Right often the positive intention is lost in the emotional attachment that people have with this dogmatic belief. Isn't it funny? Right. You, can, you can say that um, someone is politically liberal. Let's say someone supports um, the choice for a woman to have a termination or have a baby, whatever. Mm. So if someone's pro-choice, you, you kind of have this idea of, oh, they probably have this idea about the environment and this idea about... I don't know what we should do in the war or whatever. And it's kind of the same with body positivity. I hope I'm not painting too much of a, a general paintbrush here, but 
it means that they may reject this, this, and this because they believe mm. this to be the case. And we, sh- we should be able to say that we support this, but also know how far we can take it and accept right. it. Right. Yeah. And, and we, we can't get to that point in, in the conversation, as you said, because <clears throat> the emotive response is the barrier to and, and creates the dogmatism. Um, and I absolutely get if, if it, you know, I can, I, I have thin white male privilege and I, and I always have, I have never had to experience the world in a bigger body. I have never had to experience any sort of like discrimination based on, based on the, based on my size. And so I, you know, and, and I remember reading, um, the book Fat Activism by Charlotte Cooper. And, you know, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's an eye opener, particularly for me again, like as a thin white male, I'm reading this and I'm kind of going, right, I'm taking all of this on board and this all really matters and is really important. But I, I still, in terms of someone that like communicates science for nutrition, I still need to be able to look at a study objectively and say that, for example, that metabolically healthy obese over 10 years still, although they're metabolically healthy obese at baseline, that there's a higher progression to diabetes 10 years compared to, compared to normal weight healthy controls. I still need to be able to have that conversation, not because I'm dismissing the discrimination that someone has experienced at an individual level or at a society level simply so we can still have for those that want to uh, an objective assessment or ability for them to to kind of engage with their own health like if this is truly about health then we need to acknowledge and we need to be able to have a conversation that allows someone to weigh it up for themselves. Mm. You know, it's the, it's the same in a, in a less, I guess, divisive context, maybe, well, it's divisive for them, but like in a less kind of controversial context, like it's the same with, with, with low carbers that I told like the, the, the more moderate ones that I would talk to. And I'm just like, look, I can't tell you that eating, all of the animal fat is not a risk. Like, for, so you can, if you enjoy this diet, that's, I'm all for that, but know that there is a risk unless you modify the, the fat composition of your diet, for example. Um, and so it's, it's the same in the kind of, in the, in the health at every size aspect. It's like, I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not using this to dismiss by the way, because I know that an argument that comes back is like people that are like, obese for example they, they know they're obese like they're not they're not they're not unaware of this issue what and and so i'm not saying oh well, we just need to be able to talk about the risk because people know that there's a risk what i'm saying is that like when the loud conversations in the movement are defined by denialism then we can't have any productive conversation whatsoever mm. um, and and yeah and that's that's where the problem comes um and so there's, you know, there's an equal level of denialism in in that movement as well about the the health risks over the long term associated with increased adiposity, particularly if we're talking about men or women with certain and like polycystic ovarian syndrome, for example, where the tendency is towards central visceral adiposity. That's a that's a risk. You don't need BMI 
like for that to be a risk. Like someone could have a BMI of 23 and still have a lot of visceral adiposity. That's a risk. We, we can't say that that's not a risk. And so we need to be able to have that conversation objectively while also acknowledging that we need to remove weight stigma from healthcare, from society, stop defining people's health just by a visual uh, quantification of like, you know, S, you know the, the, the size aspect. Um, and yeah, I think we can hold those conversations in tension. Um, but, you know, a lot of people in the movement don't see it that way. And that's unfortunate because it just means they wall themselves off behind into their castle, you know, and then and then that's where things get 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 messy because once someone's walled off in 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 that kind of castle, you can only get through to them by throwing bricks at the castle. <laughs> like so, you know, <laughs> it becomes 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 a siege. You know, you're there with your cannon trying to like <laughs> break down walls. And but it's almost also like you're not allowed to um, have the conversation with them until you enter the castle alongside them. Oh yeah, absolutely. You you have to you have to agree to all of these things in principle first before it's like signing a you know some sort of like declaration <laughs> like, before you enter into the conversation. Um, and I yeah I I think that's a problem. And again, it's the same with all of these the same with all of these movements. You know, and it's it's funny to me because you know the Hayes community probably think the low carbers are mental because it's a diet, and they probably think you know, veganism is mental because it's an eating disorder, you know, and, and all of this, because they, they see any diet as like disordered eating, basically. And then you've got the low carb community and they think, you know, vegans are mental and the vegans think low carbers are mad. And it's just like all of these, they all think they're so different from each other. And to me, they're actually identical. Mm. All that changes, all that changes is the actual details. But in terms of their, their thinking, like, and the way that they see the world, like, and all of these like thought errors and fallacies that humans are prone to, like they're all the exact same. And actually they, <laughs> particularly the carnivore, like they all get really angry when I, when I, when I offer that, which I actually quite enjoy because they, they, they think they've got this ideological difference, but I'm just like, no, actually you're just talking about what's on your plate. Your right. ideology is the exact same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've always found it super interesting that you can have, carnival claim that it does everything for And then you can have right. it, it does the exact same claim, but with <laughs> completely opposite food. And yet some, yeah. both camps actually do get some positives and they do get some yeah. And yet they can't look over the other side of the bridge and go, it's fucking weird that the meat eater over there seems to be getting the same health benefits that I'm getting as a plant eater. Like, <laughs> right, yeah. Maybe the subtle two not being in a camp. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Now, uh, the tagline of our podcast is how to be less shit. So we've covered a lot of ground today, so I'm not sure exactly where you want to zoom into, but what would be maybe a couple of tips for listeners on how they can be less shit? <laughs> so I think for me it comes back to, to thinking, to understanding that it's it, it, it's normal, like as much as it, like this sounds critical, it's not like it's our default state as, as humans to think a certain way. And so for me, being less shit definitely comes down to being a better thinker and understanding that we're prone to thought errors. We, we all have our biases. We, we use the word bias 
kind of as a negative. It's just like, no, it's just, it literally is just inherently human, you know? Like, I have a bias for, like, Guinness versus Murphy's. Like, it's that's my bias. Like, it's fine, right? So um, we all have our biases. And, and again, a lot of them play out in our lives and they're harmless. So my kind of three things would be read Karl Popper and Carl Sagan and those kind of, like, meta-scientific thinkers. Um, try and cultivate critical thinking in in yourself in in and my favorite kind of phrase as a as a heuristic for doing this and i, I can't remember where i picked this up but it's murder your darlings <laughs> if you have beliefs that you really hold dear like sit down and like write out a list of like what what are the beliefs that i hold about the way i see the world or the, or the way i think about my diet you know and let's say i write down that like uh, eating only meat is, is the, is the best thing for me because humans have been doing it for thousands of years. This is our evolutionary diet. That's my belief. And I've written it down on paper. Actively seek out information that is contrary to your point and to your belief. And that's what murdering your darlings is. And I think it's a really good exercise, even just periodically a couple of times a year to sit down and write out like, what are the, what are the schools of thought I'm subscribing to right now? And can I find arguments that would counter that or dismantle it? Um, and just see if what you think holds up to scrutiny. Would this so be think, the same as red teaming? Oh, I don't know. What's red teaming? So I didn't know what it was either until about a year ago. I was at a, a nutrition seminar and um, the presenter said red teaming. And I think I was the only one in the audience that was like, what is, yeah, what is um, it? It just means like... He said it was a... Um, f- figuring out why that might be a bad idea. So, like, you have a good idea. Right. Like, why might that not be? Yeah, apparently it's an American, at least American tactical term. they like, right. we're going to do it this way. And then they get another team that comes in and red teams that idea and says all of the reasons why it's bad. And then they come <sighs> back. Oh, well, actually, we probably would have died. So, well done to you. Yeah. That's... It sounds like murdering your darlings, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I red teaming. I like that concept. Yeah, it's. I think it's similar to murdering your darlings. I like mur- so, I like murder. I like murdering your darlings because there is something like visceral and kind of violent about like how you. Because I'm I'm very anti belief system and anti dogma. So, so murder your darlings just has that extra element of like <laughs> being being, yeah, being ruthless. With with murdering your darling beliefs, you know. <laughs> like, I like it. such a good one. Another 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 book recommendation for for going down that road is called "The Art of Thinking Clearly" uh, by Ralph DeBelli, and it's it's not really a book; it's just a collection of mini chapters on different cognitive biases and logical fallacies that we're prone to, illustrated with a, a good, funny kind of example, and it's um, it's excellent. It's like a little. It's like a reference book, you know, you'd be like, fuck, I know what that bias is. You go back to it and you're like, yes. <laughs> Have you heard of Thinking Fast and Slow? Yes. Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that book yeah. in mind as well, talking about all sorts of biases and fallacies. And that would be a good yeah. one. If you're interested in looking further. Yeah. Um, thank you for your less shit tips. The next thing we were going to ask you is usually we have a segment called something we're sharing. So we ask the guest to give us a book, a movie, a doco, a quote, 
Um, maybe a drug. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anything. Something <laughs> worth sharing. Um, Guinness. Oh, that'd be Guinness. <laughs> it can't be Guinness. That's, I thought you were cool. <laughs> you can just get bad Guinness in Australia and basically everywhere else. Okay. Um, Do you yeah. genuinely believe the Guinness in Ireland is different to everywhere else in the world? It is. Yeah, right. it's definitely. Yeah. The only other place you might get similar is like Nigeria because they have a huge Guinness brewery in Nigeria. So that's, that's a random fact, but, um, yeah, it is. I don't know why it is. It's, it's Guinness centralized their quality control in Ireland. So it's not left to individual pubs. So the actual company go around and like service all the taps and everything. So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's really impressive. And I'm not a huge Guinness drinker, but like I do what, you know, a couple is just really hits the spot, especially when you go home after, after a while being away. Um, so, oh, a recommendation type thing. Hmm. What about, have you heard of the Cut Through Nutrition podcast? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, that is I, you know, I do, I do, I do recommend it to people because of what we talked about in terms of some of those specific issues like the socioeconomic stuff and like the problem with the food is medicine rhetoric um i think in terms of like more again kind of staying on that theme of like thinking kind of cognitive biases and stuff um i i think that there's a there's a guy called uh, daniel levitin whose whose books I always recommend. Um, He wrote one called The Organized Mind, and then he wrote another one called Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. Um, And and just generally, again, just as a way of helping people, like, navigate being better thinkers, I think they're just, like, incredible resources. Um, Yeah. Cool. Love it. I might go look those up. Yes. There's a many books now. (sighs) <sighs> I, yeah. I, I have, I bought so many books lately and um, I, I need to add this to the pile because I just, I can't read as fast as I can find new awesome books. <laughs> right. <laughs> but right. That has to go to the list. Um, okay, cool. So now we're going to ask you some funsies. Yeah, yeah finally. We've got three, we've got a three round question. They're quick answers. So first question is you have a spare 30 minutes in your day. What do you do with it? Drink Guinness. No, uh, spare 30 minutes for me would always just be reading. What do you like to read for fun? Um, so yeah, actually I, my reading for fun is, is broad ish, but I tend to gravitate to either literature. Um, and I've been kind of going back through recently a real buzz on like the classics. So I, I reread Frankenstein, which is an incredible novel. Um, Dracula, the original, like the Bram Stoker, um, but which it is, it's, it's fantastic. So I've been going down through the classics again. I read a lot of like kind of historical and political um, as well. So I've been generally my kind of like broad history interest is like kind of first and second world war. Um, and then the, the kind of post-war period uh, fascinated by American politics and, and how fucked it is. Um, and I read a lot of like kind of liberal thi- <laughs> I read a lot of kind of liberal thinkers like Noam, Noam Chomsky, uh, like all of his books, every one of them I would recommend to anybody for like just getting a really objective view of like 
why a lot of the structures we have in society now are fucked. Um, Robert Reich, who I just adore, even hit, just read his blog. Robert Reich was the Labour secretary in Bill Clinton's government, and then he resigned because he was like, "You're all fucking morons." But he talks a lot about like economic injustice and stuff like that. And his his writing's fantastic. So yeah, that's I need to read more. I always my big thing is I need to read more fiction, and I always tell myself I need to read more fiction, which is why I've been trying to get back into the classics. But, you know, I always just end up defaulting to some really heavy book on how fucked up the world is. Dean <laughs> and I have never picked up a fiction book in our life, maybe outside of being forced to in high school. This is a non-household. Yeah. There's just so many interesting things. Like, mm. I, don't have, I don't have room for fiction. I don't right. know. But... Yeah, I, um, I flat out refused to read fiction books in school when I was even in primary school. And I had to, I ended up getting, um, fuck, talk about typical exercise science student. I ended up getting uh, a freedom exception. and exception to bring in sports magazines. Because <laughs> <laughs> you refused to read something. <laughs> and then eventually I read a, a fiction book, but it was one that wasn't on the curriculum, wasn't allowed, and I was like, fuck it, if you read something, like, that'll be fine. It's funny yeah, that we had like two or three guests in a row that said they read sci-fi. Was it Fantasy. Stenzel Fantasy. and Jordan? Um Shallow. Yeah, George yeah. Shallow was into fantasy. Because fantasy. because their mind's going all day with science-heavy stuff and they use it to switch off. Ooh. I'm reading nice. a book right now called The Wisdom of Psychopaths, which is um, non-fiction, yeah. but it's nothing to do with science and it's all to do with... Uh, it's not like gory stuff about psychopaths, like really interesting stuff about what makes a psychopath, what's Ooh. the benefits of it, how can you spot one. So wow. there's a middle ground between like heavy stuff and like... yeah. Yeah. Interesting. yeah, I did. I did. Um, part of my like code because I don't tend to watch. I don't have a TV, and I don't tend to. But like, I am prone to like a Netflix binge, and binge through Mindhunter, the the first two seasons of that. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> huh? Is it a thriller, Mindhunter? No, Mindhunter is a series about the origins of the FBI behavioral sciences unit, and like how they started essentially just in going to prisons and interviewing like serial killers that had been convicted and finding out like, you know, why they did, what was their motivation like all this kind of stuff. And then they started, they started piecing together then profile. So they, they came, coined the term serial killer and they started trying to use this information to kind of codify profiles of of killers and, and you know some were driven more by like oh like mommy rejected them so they were like going around like you know killing like women for example and all this kind of stuff and it's uh yeah it's it's a kind of it's dark in places so i like it but it's um it's it's good it's uh it's 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 a it's a fun thing you could binge through in probably like two days you know yeah i almost always exclusively go to documentaries based on criminal you do love it, true it, crimes it, for fun that's my fun stuff you know? yeah. right you, you you'd you'd enjoy mindhunter then like it's really good yeah. <laughs> all right second question is uh if ethics didn't exist or you didn't have to subscribe consider. you didn't have to consider them i should say what uh study would you uh run and why Oh, I've thought about this. <laughs> I may just still do it in China. Um, so, so, so uh, and this, this conversation arose like really, really dar- darkly kind of because 
I, I kind of debated a, an LDL, like a cholesterol denialist recently um, on Sigma. And I remember thinking that one of the points they were making was, oh, well, like, you know, their LDL was like 270 milligrams. So I was like, ah. um, But the point they made was like, oh, like, I, I, we think we're coming from an evidence-based position. <laughs> and... Right. And it it came to me that like, you know, these people, this movement are, are recommending this, like overtly saying, this is fine. You don't need to treat, you don't need, you know, statins, you don't need to worry about anything. And there are people that will ultimately get heart disease because of this thinking. And I thought, and he said, oh, well, we're actually recruiting to do an observational study where we're going to do ultrasound before and after. <laughs> and in my head, I thought, you know, it would be great if you have all these people that are so convinced that, the, that their diet is, is not a risk at all, then rather than just do like an observational, I'd love to get them and like randomize them to like this, this diet and this risk over time, but not use like intermediate, like risk factors as an endpoint, like not use LDL, just use actual like myocardial infarction, heart disease, mortality. So like they can consume this diet until death basically. (laughs) And death would be our only endpoint. And then we'd be able to compare the like low carb, high fat diet group consuming like 30% saturated fat with ldl over 250 milligrams versus like normal low cholesterol levels so yeah if, if ethics didn't exist that's i put them on that diet and and, and leave them on it until until a cardiovascular event actually occurs if it puts a quote in it then i have to study. yeah right yeah that's it that would just settle it then you know <laughs> now, very last question for you it's a would you rather question. You get two choices. Mm. It may be dirty. We'll see. Oof, this is not good for you. No. Would you rather find a sex video of your significant other and their sibling or your significant other and your best friend? Oh, um, probably best friends, to be honest, just less weird. <laughs> <laughs> Best friend and your significant other. No, you, no, that's the thing. You wouldn't like if it was your best mate. You'd probably just be like, ah. Just be a bit. I'd be way more weirded out by the brother thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it would be weird if you stayed with your other after finding a video about the brother. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hey. Yeah, I, f- I found this. <laughs> Play. <laughs> yeah. Bring it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just burn the tape. <laughs> and just, just move while they're at work. Just move out. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, just pack a pack a bag. <laughs> and just leave, leave a note. Leave a note on the video, like just on the table. <laughs> <laughs> this was interesting. See you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> time today i um i was a bit first date nervous because you're such a genius but i feel like because you're so easy to talk to you made our jobs very easy and it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with it's been a pleasure it's been a great chat so i'm looking forward to have a second date at a (laughs) nutrition seminar or something are you hitting on alan in front of me yes yes (laughs) so hopefully yeah post post covid 
when 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 things settle again i definitely hope to get back down to oz um one of my best friends lives in i was groomsman at that wedding so i was uh i'll hopefully get down to him um and spend some time down there whenever we uh we we get onto the back end of all of this craziness right now that's disrupting our lives as a uh eternal optimist i feel like it's weeks away but for, for you guys, you like, like you, you never even you never you never even had a peak to flatten the curve with. Um, I think I think for the UK things are things are still going to be bad for for quite some time, um, and obviously the US is going to it's becoming a failed state before our very eyes. Um, Trump is doing such an excellent job. It's just just such an excellent job, like bleach, you know hydrochlorine whatever else he's been recommending but yeah i think you know yeah it's 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 interesting being here I, like it's funny like i think over the last three weeks on social media i've been posting more like angry political rants than i have been anything of interest nutritionally um but like yeah i think i think the uk has some hard questions that it needs that it needs to ask and it needs to answer and my worry in the uk is that people just don't want to ask the questions so they're not they're not going to get the answers they want privately they you know they'll, they'll talk about oh like you know the government's fucking doesn't give a shit and blah 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 blah, blah. they've destroyed the nhs but like when push comes to shove they won't want to ask the questions that would get them the answers they like that's that's always been my my difficulty with the kind of political landscape here and, and, and in ireland as well it's like fundamentally i'm not sure that people actually are 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 i think they're scared of change i think that's the problem <laughs> like you know there's that fear of like well what happens if we go for an alternative so no one does but yeah i, th I think things things will be ugly here for another month or so i think yeah habit is comfortable you know that's the problem even when it's uncomfortable yeah <laughs> even when it's uncomfortable yeah exactly so but yeah, it's nice. It's nice to see Australia do well, and and like a lot of the countries, like New Zealand and and even the European countries that have done well, uh, particularly the European countries that have done well, raise some interesting questions about whether having a female leader actually, you know, makes your response at a government and society level different. So I think, uh, yeah. I think maybe we'll just replace Boris Johnson with Nicola Sturgeon. <laughs> like, <laughs> let her run the place. Oh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've got a lot to get to, Alan. Is, uh, if people want to find you in this time of need as well, or any time that, that matter? Uh, yeah, so I've, I've oh, social media wise, I only exist on Instagram at the nutritional underscore advocate. And in the online space, um, they'll find me at my own website, which is alineanutrition.com. And then they will also find me at sigmanutrition.com as well. Um, they'll find um, my kind of writing that I'm doing for Sigma there and, and a couple of the podcasts that myself and Danny have done. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're the kind of three, three main, three only avenues really that people will find me at. Perfect. Beautiful. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. And thank you guys. It's been great. Bye. See ya.